Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Last week we talked about Paul being in Athens. Athens had a reputation for intellect for intellect and philosophy. That was basically the center where you want, if you, it'd be like a think tank. If you want to go with a think tank, go to Athens. Um, Corinth had a little bit of a different reputation. Corinth had many temples. Athens had many temples, but Corinth had one temple. The main temple was the temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was the goddess of sexual love and fertility. That temple had 1,000 male and female prostitutes. There were temple prostitutes, and illicit sex was worshipped in Corinth. And so while Athens had the reputation of intellect and philosophy, Corinth had the reputation of being the center of sensuality. It would be kind of like the Las Vegas of their day. Corinth's reputation was like, you know, whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That, that was kind of the, the, the atmosphere there. You know, to give you a perspective, so Paul comes to Corinth and give you a perspective of what Paul saw and what was on his heart. He wrote Romans, uh, the, the epistle to the Romans on his third missionary journey when he came back to Corinth. And if you read Romans chapter 1, and it describes that culture, that's what Paul witnessed right there in Corinth. So it's really kind of a good, it, once you start reading 1 Corinthians, jump over to Romans, and uh, it'll give you an idea of what Paul saw and what he witnessed in Corinth. Corinth not only had a reputation for sensuality, but it had a reputation for its banking industry. It was, it was a very wealthy community there. It had two, two seaports, and uh, it was a, very, it was a, a business, uh, business district as well. Corinth had a population of about 700,000 people at the time that Paul visited it. About 250 of that 700,000 were wealthy. The rest were slaves. So there was really just two tiers you know, there was no middle class. It was either the very wealthy that were slave. you know, they owned slaves, and the rest, there was almost a ratio of two to one, slaves to free people in Corinth. And so you basically had two classes, a very wealthy upper class and a very poor class, which were slaves. That's the culture that Paul encountered in Corinth. Also, in Paul's day, there were different traveling itinerant religious people and philosophers and they basically earn their living by traveling to these places but you would think a wealthy place hey there's money here they would travel there and they would they would teach or they would philosophize for a fee and so Paul um, was a tent maker we'll talk about that in a couple minutes but you know he did not want to give the Corinthians the impression that he was there like everybody else trying to make money off of them and so he ministered and he worked alongside because he didn't want he didn't want to give the wrong impression to the wealthy Corinthians. And so Paul supported himself with t tent making. He was bivocational is what we would call it. Uh, I'm bivocational, by the way. I, I, uh, I have a job besides pastoring Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Um, tent makers in those days made small portable tents of leather or cloth of goat's hair or linen. And it was for the use of travelers. You could think of it, they were kind of like the original Coleman camping industry of their day, basically. Um, so it was at this time that we read in these first three verses that uh, Paul met Aquila and Priscilla. And we're told that they're Jews that were expelled from Rome during the time of Claudius Caesar. There was a lot of anti-Semitism going on in Rome at that time. And so the Jews uh, were expelled from Rome. Now, we don't know, scripture doesn't tell us if they were Christians before they got to Corinth or if they met Paul, worked alongside, and Paul shared the gospel and they became believers. We don't know that. They may or may not have had uh, that relationship with the Lord. But they did have one thing in common, and that was they were tent makers. They had the same uh, occupation. And so Paul ended up staying with them 
and working alongside them. That friendship, this is the first time he meets Aquila and Priscilla, that friendship is one that's going to last throughout Paul's career, or not career, but throughout his life. You know, my wife and I, we've traveled, you know, we started out, well, we were married up in Duluth, and then we moved out to California. We were there for six years. We moved here for three years. We moved back to California for another three years, and we moved back here, and we've been here ever since. You know, everywhere we've gone, we've developed these friendships, and some of them are some really deep friendships that, you know, I, I could I could call up my buddy or, you know, a friend of ours, or we could visit them, and it'd be like we never left. It's like we pick up right where we left off. You've had those kind of relationships before. There's those deep friendships. And usually those are the ones that maybe cried with you or maybe you've, maybe you've mourned alongside them through something or you've just gone through something deep with them and there's that, there's that deep relationship. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla had that kind of relationship with Paul. In fact, at the end of Romans chapter 16, and Paul wrote Romans on the end of his, or towards the end of his third missionary journey, so later on in his life. And he wrote this about Aquila and Priscilla. He called them my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. You see, he met them. They were co-workers, or you know, they shared a similar occupation, but they got involved in Paul's ministry, and they traveled with Paul. And Paul could use them. He could leave them in place and say, I want you to minister here. And they did that. They ministered with Paul. In fact, Paul even says in Romans 16 that they risked their own lives, their own necks for his life. We don't know what that is referring to. But that's a deep friendship when someone, you know, is willing to lay down their life for you. And by the time Romans 16 were written, they had a church that met in their home. I mean, friendship is so important. You know, I, I've quoted this verse before, and a lot of pastors do. Hebrews 10.25 talks about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And, you know, you could take that from all different kinds of applications, but one of the applications is friendship. Friendship. You know, you want to be in a place where you've got godly friends, you know, you're not going to develop a deep, long-lasting, spiritually beneficial relationship unless you're in fellowship with the saints. That's so important to be. I mean, all of us could sit home and uh, and watch a, a, a you know a YouTube service or, or whatever. We could you know we could do that, but you're going to miss out on that fellowship. You're going to miss out on the friendships that are formed through ministering side by side. If you want a steep, uh, excuse me, a steep. If you want a deep spiritually significant relationship, man, be a godly, edifying friend. And that involves worshiping together, working together like Paul and uh, Aquila and Priscilla did, ministering together, sometimes weeping together, and certainly rejoicing together. It's so important. And Aquila and Priscilla had that sort of relationship, that sort of friendship with Paul. So verse 4, it says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. I, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse 5, it's like, it sounds like he was like, you know, I don't know what he was doing, but then when they showed up, he's like, I better stop talking about, talking about Jesus. That's not exactly what that means. To get an understanding of what verse, mean, verse 5 means where Paul was compelled to testify, you have to kind of go and look at a timeline. And so I want to share that with you right now. First of all, back in Acts chapter 17, verse 14, Paul leaves Berea for Athens. And Silas and Timothy, they have been traveling with him. They stay back in Berea. That's in Acts 17, verse 14. In verse 15, at Athens... Paul then sends for Silas and Timothy to join him there. And then, you know, it's really interesting. If you start looking at the different epistles, it really gives you a full picture. According to 1 Thessalonians 3.1, while at Athens, Paul then sent Timothy and quite possibly also Silas to Thessalonica. That was one of the churches that he had founded. He wanted to find out, man, I wonder how they're doing. So he sent them to find out how the church was doing. Then, as I read earlier just a few minutes ago, in Acts 18, verse 1, Paul then left Athens and he came to Corinth. According to 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, Timothy and probably Silas returned to Paul 
at Corinth with good news about the believers at Thessalonica. You know, Paul was concerned. I wonder how that church is doing. And he gets, hey, Paul, they're doing great. Man, they're growing in their faith. They, they're studying the word. They're, they're just, there's, it's great. Things are good. Man, what an encouragement that was for Paul. Paul then wrote what scholars believe his first epistle, which was 1 Thessalonians at that time. Well, when Timothy and Silas arrived at Corinth, evidently, according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, they brought with them financial gifts that the churches in Macedonia, and specifically, because you can read about that in Philippians chapter 4, specifically the church at Philippi, they gave financial gifts to support Paul in his ministry. And so when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. What that word means, compelled, metaphorically, it means to be held by or closely occupied with any business, and in this case would be teaching the word. So in other words, until uh, Timothy and Silas showed up, Paul was ministering as much as he could in the synagogues, but he was also working. So, you know, he was dividing his time. And so he could only do so much. But now these guys come and, you know, they share, hey, Paul, the church back at Thessalonica, they're doing great. And by the way, they want to support you in your work. And so that freed up Paul to focus completely on just sharing the gospel. And so that's what that verse means. It says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath that Jesus is the Christ. We came across that word reason before, and it basically means he dialogued. He wasn't just preaching. He was having a conversation. He was dialoguing with them. And what he did was he used Old Testament scriptures. Because, you know, the New Testament wasn't written at that time. So he went back to the Old Testament. These were Jewish people. And he's saying, hey, look at this passage here. And he would go through maybe Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or these different passages of scripture and say, look, this is Jesus. And so he dialogued with them using the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus was the Christ. In the Greek, it's the Christos, which means the anointed one. Um, or the Mashiach, which is the, the Hebrew, means the Messiah. Basically means the same thing, the anointed one, the Christ. You know, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 2, he said this in chapter 1, excuse me, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, he said this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech, or of wisdom to uh, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Last week, Paul had just come from Athens, the seat of intellectual pride and philosophy. And he dialogued with them too. But the thing is, he couldn't use Old Testament scriptures because they didn't know. They didn't know the Hebrew Bible. They didn't know anything about the scriptures. They had no knowledge of the scriptures. And so if we read last week in chapter 17, Paul, he kind of did a little bit of sightseeing when he first got to Athens. He walked around and, you know, he wasn't just like, oh, I wonder if there's a gift shop here. I got I to gotta find something for Mrs. Paul, you know. <laughs> he didn't do that. What he was doing, I believe, was he was praying, Lord, Lord, show me, show me an opening. Show me a way that I can share with these people and God showed him a way. You know, they, they were, even though they were intellectual, they had, made, they had idols to just about everything, including themselves. But they had one idol that they worshipped that said to the unknown God. And they're like, just in case we missed one of them. You know, these guys were superstitious. Um, and so Paul found that as his entry point. And Paul said, hey, what you guys worship you don't know. I'm here to declare who he is. And he started talking to them from that point. And there was some fruit some men, at the end of chapter 17, did join him and believed. It says, among them, Dionysius, an Aeropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And I've heard pastors teach chapter 17 before and say, you know, that was a failure. Paul learned that he, you know, he didn't do it right in, in Athens, and he, he changed and, and started doing it better when he got to Corinth. But you know what? And, and I've heard people say that and you, because, look at the fruit, there's only a few people who got saved. Oh, man, I tell you, it's, it's, don't judge by numbers. Don't judge by numbers. You can get, it just, that's what the world does, okay? The world looks at success if there's numbers. And unfortunately, Christians sometimes get caught up in that. Don't judge spiritual fruit by the numbers. God cares about the individual. I mean, after all, man, he met with that one woman at the well to talk to her. You know, God would, Jesus would spend the time with the individual as well as with the crowds. And so... 
there was fruit there. But at Athens, by and large, the crowd's response was two things. It was mocking and apathy. They just didn't care. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. And so the Greeks at Athens, they mocked when Paul started talking about the resurrection, they started mocking him, and they were apathetic to the gospel. The Jews of Corinth had a different reaction. Verse 6, But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. The idea of having blood on your head or on your hands, it's an image that comes from Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter uh, 33 about the watchman. God told Ezekiel, I've appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. And he said, if, if I tell you something, uh, you need to faithfully report it to the people. You need to tell them. So a watchman, you know, you're watching a city, for example, and uh, you see that there's an enemy sneaking up on the city. And you proclaim it. Hey, there's an enemy coming. We've got to get you know, battle stations or whatever they, whatever they said in those days. Um, if the people just like, who cares, you know? If they, didn't, if they didn't heed the warning when that enemy did come, because he saw them coming, when they did come and they attacked the city, those people that ignored the warning, they would be responsible. Their blood would be on their own heads or on their own hands. They were responsible for not doing anything. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I've declared to you the word of God. I've warned you about the judgment to come. And they've said, we don't care. And he's like, okay. I, it's almost like I'm done, you know? And he moved on from there. That's what that's referring to. Verse 7. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. I want to stop there for a second. That's so cool how God does that, right? Opens up the door. Obviously, this Justice became saved at that point, or at some point, he became a believer. And he lives right next door to the synagogue. And, you know, the, the church was just exploding with believers coming to faith in the Lord. And the, the synagogue of the Jews, they're sitting there watching, you know, all these people, you know, Sunday morning or Saturday morning, whatever. They're watching all these people coming to the house there, and they're like, hmm, you know, and it, it impacted them. Well, verse 8 says, Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed were baptized. So Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, it would appear from what we just read that after Paul left the synagogue, and he goes next door to the house of Justice, uh, Crispus, excuse me, Justice, um, that while he's there, the Holy Spirit starts just working on Crispus's heart, and he comes to faith in the Lord. Him and his entire family come to faith in Christ. Some people think that Justice... That, were, that, that person, Justice, we just read, that his full name is Gaius Titus Justice. And that he's the Gaius of Romans chapter 16, verse 23. In that verse, Paul is greeting the church in Corinth, or excuse me, uh, he's greeting the Romans. He says, Gaius, my host, and the whole host, uh, and the host of the whole church greets you. In other words, Gaius, they think Gaius and Justice are the same person. And that this is the host that Paul went to stay next door to the synagogue. If that's true, because we don't know for sure, but if that's true, that gives insight into this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And they don't mention the, the Stephanus and mention a couple other people. But there's very few people that were baptized by Paul. But it's interesting, Crispus and Gaius, and people think that's justice. And so they probably became friends too. But it says that after Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed and was baptized, evidently the news kind of had a ripple effect and it influenced many other people to come to faith in Christ. Can you imagine being the one person who shares Christ? You, know, you see some guy or some girl on the street corner and you share the Lord with them they come to faith in Christ. Could you imagine if they're the next Billy Graham? 
I mean, that could happen, right? Somebody who's just, God's going to use in a spectacular way, and you just happen to share the gospel with them and bring them to the Lord. You know, God does those things. And so it almost seems like that's what happened here with Crispus. He got saved, and it had a ripple effect on many other people. Well, we get to verse 9. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. The literal Greek means stop being afraid. For the Lord to say that to Paul, Paul was afraid. What he was afraid of, we don't know. Maybe because he had been beaten before at, at, uh, at, at you know, uh, the other, that other city. I was going to say, like, like, you guys know what I'm talking about. He had been beaten before. Maybe that's what he was afraid of. Maybe he was afraid there's going to be another riot like there was before. He was afraid. You know, that comforts me. It really does. Because if Paul the Apostle has those moments of fear, maybe a moments of doubting, you know, all of a sudden he's paralyzed, like, oh, I don't know what to do. Man, that makes, that makes me feel okay. You know, and, and God knows, God knows our hearts. And so the Lord wouldn't say that if Paul wasn't afraid. He had moments of paralyzing fear just like many of us do from time to time. And the Lord spoke to his condition of fear. He says, do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. That's kind of interesting. What that does not mean that does not mean that that Lord's saying, hey, there's a lot of closet Christians here. They're going to come out of the woodwork. No, that's not what he's saying. Romans 4, verse 17, Paul writes, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. In Acts 15, verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. Romans 8, 29, and 30, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What the Lord wasn't telling Paul is, Paul, there's these closet Christians, they'll, they'll come out once they see you. No, what he's telling them is, keep sharing the gospel a lot of people are going to come to faith through your ministry. That's, that's what the Lord's telling him. Don't stop. I've got people here. He's speaking. You know, the Lord, I praise God that God looks at us, not at how we are right now, but he looks at you and I, how we're going to be, how he sees us, you know. And praise God that the Lord does that. The Lord's basically telling Paul, your ministry is going to be fruitful. Just continue preaching. The Holy Spirit's the one that's going to do the convicting and the convincing of these sinners to come to Christ. And there's going to be many people in this city. And so what did Paul do? Verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It's okay and it's natural to have moments of fear, paralyzing fear. I've had them before. Agony, you know, just anxiety all of a sudden. It's okay but God spoke to his fear, and you know what Paul did? He believed God, and he obeyed God. Because some people, they stay in that place of fear, you know, uh, and, and, and that's what the enemy wants you to do. The enemy wants to paralyze you, and that's why he'll bring everything at you, because he wants to paralyze you, he wants to discourage you, he wants to demoralize you, whatever, and he wants you to stay in one place. God is speaking to Paul, Paul, don't be afraid, just continue. It's going to be fruitful. And so Paul obeyed and started preaching. And he continued there for 18 months. He wasn't paralyzed by fear. Verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So after some time, this new proconsul, this new Roman leader is there in Corinth, and they're like, ha-ha, there's a new sheriff in town, and we're going we're gonna to get him riled up against Paul. And so they bring him before this guy. And remember, Paul, 
back in Philippi, man, he's a Roman citizen. You know, Roman citizens were treated differently than other people. And uh, so Paul, being a Roman citizen, he's prepared to defend himself. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you've been treated wrongly or whatever, and you rise up like, I've got I've 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 to defend myself? Paul was about to do that, <laughs> but he didn't have to. Gallio defended him himself. I mean, God fought his battle, basically. God used Gallio to defend Paul. Look at verse 14. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. He's like, you know what? You're just, this is Jewish stuff. I don't care about that. Out of here. Get out of here, you know. Um, I don't want to be a judge of such matters. Well, that didn't sit too well with the people. Verse 17, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. I've mentioned it before. Anti-Semitism is not a new new phenomenon. It, it happened even back then. This guy, Sosthenes, evidently, when Crispus got saved, he probably started going and fellowshipping at justice, at the House of Justice too. And so they needed a new synagogue leader in Sosthenes. Maybe he was the vice leader or whatever, vice rabbi or whatever they call it. He stepped in and now he's the leader. And they start beating, the Greeks or the Gentiles start beating him in front of Gallio. And Gallio's like, doesn't care, doesn't do anything about it. What's interesting about Sosthenes is in 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Yeah, that's interesting. There's some commentators, in fact, there's one in particular I was looking at, it says Sosthenes couldn't possibly have been the same person that you know, was beaten. It just couldn't be. I'm like, why not? Isn't that just like God to do something like that? It's just like God to do that. I wonder if Paul himself... Or maybe Crispus started ministering to the badly beaten Sosthenes. You know, ministering compassion to him. Going over, maybe they were like the Philippian jailer. Remember when the Philippian jailer got saved? What did he do? He washed, he washed the wounds on Paul and, Barn- or Paul and Silas. And uh, I wonder if that's the same thing he did. You know, ministering compassion to people, it has an impact. It has, it has an effect on people. And so we're not told. It's just speculation. But to me, it's just, it would be just like God to do something like that and for him to get saved. And now he's one of the brethren as well. Verse 18. So Paul, remained, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. So Paul, it says he still remained a good while. We know that he stayed for 18 months, about 18 months in Corinth. And now he left Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, you know, they were just basically, uh, you know, co-workers, basically. Now they're co-ministry people, ministering side by side. And they leave with Paul from Corinth to sail for Syria. Now, Centria was the eastern seaport of Corinth. And evidently there was also a church of believers at Centria because in Romans 16.1, Paul says this, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is servant of the church in Centria. You know, one of the things that I, uh, that I really love is the relationships that we've built over the years. And, you know, we get people that come here for Mayo Clinic, right? I mean, quite often visitors to our church, there's usually a, a good good chance that they're here because of Mayo Clinic. You know, they, they're, they're here for treatment or something. And we build a relationship with them. One of the ministries that my wife and I have, we've done forever, uh, not forever, but, you know, since we've been in ministry, is solace ministry, where people have come and stayed in our homes, uh, you know, as they're, as they're here for Mayo Clinic. And, man, we've built some really deep relationships. And they're all over the place. We've got open invitations to go. You could name just about any state in the, in the union, and we pretty much have an invitation to go there to visit someone because of those relationships that we built. And that's the same thing with Paul. 
He's going around, and man, there's all these people. Fellowship and friendship is so important, guys. It's so important. So he had his hair cut off in Centria, it says, for he had taken a vow. Now this appears to refer to a voluntary vow of the Nazarite. Uh, you can read that in Numbers 6. The vow of the Nazarite, again, it was voluntary, but they were to partake of no grapes or wine or anything from the grapevine. In fact, they couldn't even listen to, I heard it through the grapevine. I mean, you had nothing, to, you had nothing with grapes. Uh, they basically had to stay away from it, even the music. They also weren't to touch any dead bodies. And then they would allow their head, hair to grow during this, this vow of separation. And then at the end of the completion of their vow, they'd cut their hair, and it would be like an offering of purification. So it seems that Paul had just completed his vow um, because, like I said, the Nazarite would cut off their hair at the completion. Um, it's interesting you know, Paul's the one that's teaching grace, right? He's, he's the Gentiles. They don't need to be, uh, they don't need to be uh, circumcised. It's just faith in Christ Jesus. There's no works that you do. It's just faith in Christ Jesus. And yet here, he's doing something that was part of the Jewish you know, traditions or the Jewish law, basically. Why would Paul, who taught so much about grace, take a Nazarite vow? Well, first of all, I think there's two reasons. The first reason... It's voluntary. This wasn't a command that, you know, every third year you should take a vow. No, this was a, a voluntary thing. And so it's between the Lord and the person taking the vow. Kind of like present-day fasting is. There's not a command, you, you shall be vast, uh, fast, and yet the, Lord, the Bible talks about when you fast, how, how to fast and stuff. And so that's just something that we voluntarily do. Um, and so this might have just been a voluntary vow that Paul had made. The second reason... You know, Paul was continually being accused of trashing his Jewish heritage and his upbringing. And Paul not only wanted to minister to the Gentiles, but, you know, everywhere he went, he ministered to the synagogues of the Jews. He also wanted to minister to the Jews. And he wrote this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9.19. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. That, that's, a, that's a friend, right? He, he cares about the Jewish people, and he cares about the Gentiles. And he's willing to lay down his rights and his freedoms if it means ministering to others. Are you willing to lay down your rights? and your? I've got a right to be. Are you willing to lay that down in order to minister to somebody else? I remember years ago, we had uh, a meeting with uh, Sammy Tanago. The first time we had Sammy Tanago out at our, at our fellowship here in Rochester, he has a ministry to Muslims. And before he came, he said, I want you to go to the, to the, uh, to the uh, mosque in town and invite the, Isla, the, the uh, Iman and any, anybody to come to a meeting. And so we had this meeting set up at a hotel. And, uh, and so I went to the, to the mosque. This was right after 9-11. I went to the mosque and met with the I-man and a couple other people. Um, the B-man? No, I'm just here. The I-man, whatever they call it. And uh, I'm sorry. I've had a little bit of coffee this morning. But. <laughs> Anyways, um, so we invited them to come. Now, we invited them and the entire mosque to come, but only the leaders came with their wives. But one of the things that we did, I know my wife did, and I think some of the other ladies did, we covered our, we didn't, but the women covered their hair. And why we don't have to do that but you know what that took a wall down because you know that they already have preconceived ideas about western women but for a woman to voluntarily do something like that i think it had an impact on the people that were there um, and so that's what paul i think is doing here verse 19 and he came to ephesus and left them there, speaking of Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So Paul left Aquila and Priscilla at Ephesus, and then he traveled to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. We don't know which one, one of the annual feasts. Verse 22, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Again, there's people there 
better brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, Paul greeted the church at Caesarea. We know from Acts chapter 21 that Philip the evangelist settled down in Caesarea and he had four daughters who were prophets. They prophesied. Uh, So Philip was there at the church. That's also where Cornelius, the first Gentile to come to faith, that's where he lived in Caesarea. So Cornelius the centurion, Philip the evangelist, it's just a great fellowship. So he went there and greeted that church. Verse 23, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. Now we don't know how long Paul stayed at Antioch, but you know, Paul not only had the heart of an evangelist, he had the heart of a pastor as well. Winning souls to Christ was not a project to Paul. It wasn't like, you know, hey, I've got, you know, 300 people that got saved here. and I, You know, it's like he's telling all these people that got saved. No, Paul cared about the individual. Paul cared about the people. He was always praying about the people. You can read about that. In fact, how many times Paul says, I've been praying night and day for you. I'm thinking, man, this guy, what does he do besides praying? I mean, he prays a lot, and he's always praying for other people, and I don't think he was a liar. Paul prayed for people. He cared about people. He kept sending people, man, I wonder how that church is doing. Silas or Timothy or whoever, man, go and find out what they're doing. I I just want to know because he was concerned. He had a burden for all those people that he had led to the Lord. He wanted to find out how they were faring. And then when he would go somewhere, he would strengthen the disciples. Peter, referring to the disciples of the same region that Paul is talking about, in his epistle, he refers to those as the pilgrims of the dispersion. A pilgrim, I got the definition on the screen, it's a stranger, sojourner, Not simply one who was passing through, but a foreigner who was settled down, however briefly, next to or among the native people. Man, doesn't that describe you and I? I mean, you know, we have jobs, we have homes, we have mortgages, you know, we have bills and stuff. We're part of our society. You know, we're, we are passing through, but we're also here for, for a short period of time. We know that this isn't our home, right? We know that heaven is our home. But we've settled down, however briefly, among unbelievers. Man, that, just, that describes us. How important it is to strengthen, to be strengthened. You know, one of the things, and I, I keep mentioning that conference, uh, well, the men's conference, but also the conference in, uh, in September there, the Calvary Chapel, Heartland region. I, I tell you, one of the things that's really cool, you know, this church, Calvary Chapel, Rochester, you know, we're a local, a local body. But what's really cool is when you go to one of these conferences and you find out that there are a lot of little churches like ours throughout the area, and we all have the same heart, the same burden, the same vision. It's really cool. It's really encouraging. It's encouraging for me as a pastor. And I know people that have gone, it's been encouraging. Go, man, there's, there's other people that are weird like us, you know? <laughs> and so Paul is strengthening the disciples. And there is a need to strengthen one another in our pilgrimage. We need to be, we need to be strengthening one another. Verse 24 and I apologize for the picture. It's like one of those flannel graph Sunday school things. I, could, I just couldn't find a good picture of Apollos. Of course, I guess they didn't, they didn't have cell phones back then, but there's no selfies of Apollos anywhere. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So we're told a little bit about Apollos. Apparently he had Jewish parents, so he's a Jewish. He was born in Alexandria, Egypt, very educated, a very, you know, uh, uh, very important city in those days. And he's given the name Apollos, which actually the Apollos means given, uh, given by Apollo. Apollo was one of the Greek gods, right? It's kind of interesting that that's his name. Well, what that tells me is that more than likely he was a Hellenized Jew. A Hellenized Jew was someone that lived part of the Roman Empire, and they, had, they, they, they could speak, uh, you know, they didn't just speak Hebrew, uh, they spoke um, Latin or whatever, Aramaic, I guess, it'd be, whatever it was. They would speak that, uh, probably Latin. And then uh, they kind of, you know, they, they, uh, 
they weren't like the Greek or the Orthodox Jewish people where, you know, they, I mean, you see them down the street and that's an Orthodox Jew. Today you even do that and you see an Orthodox Jew. No, they were people that kind of, kind of had adopted the culture around them. Not in a bad way necessarily, although some probably did. But that's what tells me this Apollos was. And he was probably very educated uh, being born in Alexandria. Verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he, only, uh, though he knew only of the baptism of John. So this guy was a disciple of John the Baptist. Verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love that verse. A couple things that jump out of there. First of all, that you know, Paulus was speaking, they were like, hey, that's wrong. You know, they didn't do that, right? They pulled him aside separately, just one-on-one, two-on-one, I guess it would be. And, uh, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Think about this. Again, we don't know if they were Christians when they met Paul or not, but undoubtedly, spending a year and a half with Paul, they probably grew. They probably learned a lot about Christianity and their faith. Obviously, it's producing fruit in their lives. They're now they're ministering alongside of Paul. But what tells me is they took whatever they learned and studied and they applied it. Guys, it is so important. You know, let's be students of the word, but not just for ourselves. Let's use it in ministering to one another here in the fellowship and ministering outside the walls of this church. Let's apply what we've learned. And that's what Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla did. So Aquila and Priscilla, they come to this, they hear this guy speaking, man, he's a great speaker and stuff. People really like him and everything. But they see a need. A need is this guy needs to be discipled a little bit. And so they disciple Apollos. One of the things, and I wish more of you guys could have attended our Calvary Distinctives class because I think we really talked about some cool stuff. One of the things that uh, people ask me is about ministry here at Calvary Chapel Rochester. And I use the term organic. Ministry here is organic. And there might be other definitions of, you you might have a different idea of what organic ministry means. But to me, this is what organic ministry means. So maybe I'm not even using the right term. But this is what it means to me. You see a need. God lays, you become aware of the need. I mean, there's a, sometimes there's needs and we're not aware of them, right? But you become aware of a need, and then God calls you to fill that need. It's funny. I used to get phone calls from people or conversations. People say, hey, uh, pastor, I, I saw this need in the church, and I said, there's just, man, there's a burden here. The church needs to do this, or you need to do this. They'll say to me, and I'm like, oh, cool. And my thought is, and I have said this to people before, is, you know, Think about this. If the Lord revealed it to you, maybe he wants you to meet that need. You know, maybe, just maybe, you know. But that's it. You know, there's a need. Because we don't just like, you know what, we need, uh, well, I'm trying to think of something like, you know, say for example, we need a college ministry. We have nobody here that goes to college. <laughs> you know, it's like, we need a college ministry. We're just build it and they will come, you know. No. Is there a need? Let's meet the need. And that's what ministry at here at Calvary Chapel Rochester has been. There's a need. We become aware of a need. Someone feels called to fill it. And then there's the willingness to actually do it. It's great to have visions for ministries, but if you don't ever do anything, that's just a great idea, right? Ministry takes time and effort. And that's what Aquila and Priscilla did. They took time to sit down with Apollos. I don't think it was just one sitting. I think they spent an amount of time with them, discipling them, because ministry takes time and effort besides being willing. So they spent some time. They explained the way of, uh, of God more clearly to Apollos. We don't know a whole lot more, like if he got baptized at that point, or you know, we don't know much more about that, but look at verse 27. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, that's where Corinth is, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Man, he had, didn't have all his facts right necessarily, but he had a good heart. He was trained a little bit, he was explained a little bit, and now he's just running with it and ministering. 
It says he greatly helped those who had believed through grace for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. That effort that Paul, I mean, that Aquila and Priscilla put forward, it produced fruit. There's a phrase that you've probably heard it before. It's kind of cliche, but it's true. Healthy sheep reproduce healthy sheep. And, and that's, that's so true, you know. Um, man, as you, as you read the word, as you're growing, man, start, start applying it, start ministering. Well, Paulus was a very eloquent and convincing teacher of the word. And you know what? It became a problem. It became a problem. Nothing that Apollos did. The Corinthians. It was a problem for the carnal Corinthians. Look at, well, you don't have to look at that. I'll just read it to you. But it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, excuse me. Paul says this. It has been declared to me concerning uh, you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. <clears throat> that means there are contests or there's, there's, there's a, you know, something going on there. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or the real spiritual ones, I'm of Christ. You know, I mean, it's like people were having camps. Think about this. Paul, the greatest mind, the greatest mind in the New Testament church, wrote most of the New Testament, decided after Athens, man, I'm just going to keep it simple. And in 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. That means he was humble in humility. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And that appealed to some of the Corinthians. Man, I just keep it simple. Man, I, just, just, I want it just simple. You know, they, they liked that. And so there was a group of people that, like, man, Paul's my guy. I want to hear, whenever Paul's teaching, I want to listen to him. That appealed to some Apollos, on the other hand, he did come with excellence of speech. Not that he was trying to manipulate people. That's just, that's just who he was, right? We all are who we are. And, and God uses us with our personalities and everything. And he was an eloquent man and mighty in scriptures. And he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. And that appealed to other Corinthians. Some like it really simple. Some like the elegant. I like. I just like the way he says it. You know, he says it so well. He alliterates all his sentences. You know, all his, his points are all alliterated. And, you know, so far there's no problem, right? I'm not going to minister to everybody. You know, next pastor's not. Gonna, you know, we all have different personalities and different giftings and stuff. There's not a scintilla of a hint of competition between Paul and Apollos. Zero. There's no, there's no competition between them. The problem was the Corinthians. They were the ones that had the divisions, where they were saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? You know the end of that epistle? Paul's greeting, of course, the church. He's greeting, it's the epistle to the Corinthians. And he makes this comment in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 12. He says this, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. I always wondered about that. Why, why is that even in scriptures? Why did Apollo say, you know, Paul, usually, I mean, it's like, okay, Paul, you want me to go? Okay, I'll go. He says, no, I'm not willing to go right now. I'll go later. Doesn't that make you wonder why he said that? I think, and this is my opinion, this is not thus saith the Lord, this is thus saith Don, that's not worth a whole lot, but you can be a Berean and look at it yourself. 
I think Apollos had a very definite reason for staying away from Corinth at that time. Because this is 1 Corinthians, the first epistle. Paul heard about all these divisions. People were... People had sides. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Paul. I'm with Peter. I'm with Jesus. And you know, there's all these there's all these divisions going on. And I think I think Apollos is like, you know what? I'm going to stay away right now. I don't want to fan the flames of division by showing up. I'm going to wait until you these guys read this epistle. It soaks in, and hopefully. They apply it, and they, they start, hopefully there's going to be a change, and then I'll come. Honestly, I think that's why that's written. I think that's why that's here. Again, I could be wrong. He was undoubtedly aware of the contentions and division, and rather than fan the flames, he opted to stay away, probably hoping for a change of attitude and a change of heart. That's spiritual maturity in my book. You know, if I were to wrap up this chapter, and I, I was going to give it a title, and uh, Tim even asked me for the live stream, what's the title? And I was like, well, just Acts chapter 18. But when I was studying this, the thing that just kept jumping out at me is friendship. Friendship. Fellowship. The kind of fellowship, the kind of friendships that you want. Some like uh, you know, Priscilla and Aquila, man, they're lifelong friends. That, that they're, they're there through thick and thin. Fellowship is important in the body of Christ because godly, edifying friendships spring out of Fellowship. It springs out of fellowship. When we're worshiping together, when we're working together, when we're ministering together, and when we're weeping and rejoicing together, and we see that in the fellowship and the friendship of Kula and Priscilla. True friends are willing to lay down their rights and freedoms if it means ministering to others. And we saw that with Paul being willing to, to go through and, and do that vow um, before you know, the Jewish people that he was ministering to. True friends care about the spiritual well-being of others. And we saw that with Paul. Paul was so concerned about these churches, he was always sending someone, hey, find out how they're doing and let me know. Because Paul was praying. He had a burden for all those people that he ministered to. And true friends are not in competition with each other. They'd rather put someone ahead of themselves. And we see that with Apollos and Paul regarding the the, uh, carnal believers in Corinth. Friendship, to me that was the theme of this chapter, friendship, and it's so important. I want to close with this last verse. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. If you want the kind of a deep friendship like Aquila and Priscilla had, the kind of the friendship that is a non-competition between Apollos and Paul, man, be one of those friends. You want to edify, you want to be edified, edify someone else. Build up that kind of friendship. That's why fellowship is so important, especially in these last days. Man, you get out of here, people want to chew, and you know, there's no mercy, there's no compassion in the world. This is where it should be in the body of Christ. Amen. Why don't you guys stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. I'll have the worship team come on up.